Um, but before we begin our study today in Ezra 7, I want you to consider something with me. You may have heard it said that America today is becoming a post-Christian society. Historically, for us to have been deemed a Christian society means that Christianity has been the dominant religion of our land and thus has had the greatest influence on our shared values, culture, and worldview throughout our country. Therefore, for us to be in a state of becoming post-Christian means that the Judeo-Christian value system of the Bible is having less and less of an influence on our shared value system, culture, and worldviews across our land. Who's responsible for this? I joke, but in reality, this is a question that is actually causing much angst and hostility among Christians in our land. It's the professors. They're the ones who took the Bible out of schools. Or it's those leftists. They're the ones with the unbiblical agendas. It's those leftist professors. They're in cahoots. No, no, no. It's those, it's those right-wingers. They're the ones who corrupted it all. Or maybe it's those flaky millennials with all their social concerns. Who's responsible for this shift? We hear or cry. I'm convinced it's those Jersey preachers in their boots and funky hats. <laughs> a bit comical and a bit too real, huh? Last month, family, a biannual study was released by Ligonier Ministries with Lifeway Research on the state of theology for 2022. In it, they surveyed thousands of Americans across the country to determine the status of our beliefs about God. The state of theology. Theology simply referring to the study of God. So the survey is indicative of our general understanding of God as a nation in 2022. There's much insight to be gleaned from this report, but of chief concern today for us is what was found among evangelicals. Those who affirm their belief in the inerrancy and the ultimate authority of Scripture, and those who prioritize the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, us. Very specifically, us. And this survey was, was conducted among evangelical individuals across the country, not left or right groups, Jersey or PA groups, white or black groups, evangelicals across the country. Now, when asked to agree or disagree whether God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, 56% of evangelicals, more than half, agreed that is true. When asked to agree or disagree that Jesus was a great teacher but not God, 43% of evangelicals, almost half, agreed that is true. When asked to agree or disagree that everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature, 55% of evangelicals, more than half, agreed that is true. When asked to agree or disagree that the Bible, like all other sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths but is not literally true, 26% of evangelicals, a quarter, agreed that is true. In other words, those who identify themselves according to the word of God 
affirm that the word of God is not true. Does this matter? No, come on, for real. Does, do our beliefs in these things really make a difference in our lives and in the lives of the world around us? Let me ask you another question. Does this matter more than who you vote for next week? Does your belief in these questions bring about more change in your life and in the lives of those around you than who you vote for? We want to know what's happening in the world. We want to know why. We want to know who's responsible. We want to know how to heal our land. And it appears as if too many of God's people are searching for answers and solutions in everything but the Word of God, in everyone but God Himself. What is our responsibility in the changing landscape, in the health of the American church? in the health of our homes? That's a serious question. To clarify, for those who may be a bit confused at this point, the resounding answer to all those questions for historic evangelicals like us should be false, false, false. Let me ask another question to put it a different way. What are you looking for? What do you want in life as a Christian? Think about that. Think about that and let's consider what God says this morning about how we prosper together as Christians in a disorienting world. We've been studying the Old Testament book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week, Keith led us in celebrating the high point of Ezra 1 through 6, the people of God who returned from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem have rebuilt the temple, a high point in the book. This was their primary task according to the decree of the Persian king Cyrus from Ezra 1, as was as well as ultimately the sovereign work of God who moved the king and moved the hearts of the people to accomplish this task. Now, before we enter into Ezra 7, I want to zoom out here and give you a bird's eye view of the trajectory of the book ahead. What we're going to see is that the decree from the beginning, from Ezra 1 to return and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem from Ezra 1, will be fully accomplished in three movements. Look at the slide. We're calling these movements because God literally moves the hearts of Persian kings as well as moves the hearts of his people to accomplish these, to send these people on each wave, okay? These movements consist of three literal waves of people, God's people, moving from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. Each movement consists of similar features. The setting restarts back in exile and works its way toward Jerusalem. There are new characters introduced each time, new leaders. And there's a new focus to each movement that's introduced, all with each with respect to the full restoration and renewal of God's community. So what you can see, as you can see here, Ezra 1 through 6, the focus was on returning and rebuilding the temple. We had the leaders that we looked at. Now we're entering into the second movement with new leaders, with a new focus, rebuilding the community of God uh, in, in line with the Torah of God as well as entering into the first seven chapters of Nehemiah, where there's another new leader appointed with a third wave that goes back to rebuild the city and its walls. All three movements 
composing the, re the return and the rebuilding of God's people. You can already see now why historically Ezra Nehemiah has been one book. They, they've, it's, it's, it's a unit. That's why we're referring to Ezra Nehemiah as one book, uh, because we can already see the interconnectedness. And that will continue to the end of Nehemiah, but we don't want to spoil that for you at this point. This is important, though, because now we're going to start in Ezra 7, entering into the second movement. What we're going to see today is we're going to look at the person who is appointed to lead the movement, the purpose of the movement, the politics of the movement, and the power behind the movement. Okay, we're going to look at the person, the purpose, the politics, and the power behind the movement. I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then our ushers will walk around and pass out Bibles for those who would like to, to, to track with us with an open book in your hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day, this day of worship, celebration, a day of thanksgiving where we come together. We thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us, continue to do in our lives. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you for the men's retreat. Be with them today as they're worshiping, as we speak. Lord, bless them. Continue to unite them, empower them, uh, fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they would come back to their households and to our households here at Riverstone and, uh, and be all the more uh, filled with a zeal for love and good works and, and for you, oh God. Open the eyes of our hearts now, Lord, to see and behold marvelous things from your word. Help us to see and behold you above all. In Jesus' name, amen. So the ushers will pass around Bibles. We'll also have the scripture up on the screen here. Let's look at Ezra 7, first 10 verses, verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishwa, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites and the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from, from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Wow. Finally, we meet Ezra, the man whose name this book is attributed to. And what an entrance on scene. Let's make some observations here. First, after these things, the narrator starts. After these things, he's leaping from the completion of the temple in Jerusalem under King Darius. That's what we saw last week. He's leaping back to Babylon under the reign of Artaxerxes. This leap is 60 years. It's a 60-year jump. The second observation, this genealogy. Wow. Ezra's from quite the stock. This is the, the longest genealogy attributed to, to one figure, one leader in, in all of Ezra and Nehemiah here. And this genealogy is traced all the way back to the first high priest, Aaron himself, who served alongside Moses. The genealogy is important here because it attests to this man's legitimate authority among the Jewish people. Third observation, Ezra is the person. 
appointed to lead the second movement. So let's analyze him a bit now according to what we see here in Scripture. In verse 6, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God had given. The king grants him all that he requests. And the hand of the Lord his God is upon him. Two things are made clear here about Ezra. One, he, had a, he seemed to have a close proximity to the king in what seems to be a, a designated role for him in the Persian courts. This, this scribal role, maybe, maybe serving something like that of a secretary of Jewish affairs would have been what, what, Ezra, what Ezra's role in, in the Persian courts could have looked like. And two, God's hand is upon him. So the king's favor is with him, and God's favor is with him. This guy's no joke. There's something special about him. He must be from Jersey. Just trying to make some observations. Verse 7 indicates that there were others who went with him from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to look at them more closely next week in chapter 8. Pastor Jeremy is going to be preaching on chapter 8 next week. And another important feature is the, the time of year that's recorded here. It's, it's very clear uh, when they started, when they ended, how long it took. Scripture says the first of the first month of the year they departed and got there on the fifth month. Four months total travel time. What we have here, we have basically an introduction and an overview of the whole movement right from the start, which we're going to see all throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8. So, so he gives the, the trajectory. He says the whole movement was accomplished in four months. But what's important to note here is that he, he, makes, he makes sure to highlight that they left on the first of the first month. This relives the first exodus. Exodus from Egypt, led by Moses many years earlier, uh, where, where, where they, they left at the same time of year. So here we continue to see traces of a second exodus. Remember, Keith was talking about that last week. The intro here in verse 9 notes that they accomplished their journey because the good hand of his God was upon him. Second time we see this in Ezra's intro. But here it's followed by a four. God's hand was upon him because Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach the people of Israel. Ezra set his heart. This phrase literally means he committed his whole being to study. This word carries the sense of pursuit with all, your, with all cause, to, to, to seek with great care the law of the Lord. Isn't this interesting? We just saw in verse 6, that the law of Moses was given to Israel by God himself. It was God's law called the Torah. Now let's take a step back for a moment and reflect on this a bit. This is important, I believe. The law of Moses, the law of the Lord referred to here, is mostly Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You ever read those books? They're the third, fourth, and fifth book in, in, in the Bible as part of the, the first five, the, the Torah. But these specifically, these three books contain over 600 legal stipulations, laws for the people to follow to preserve their relationship with God. It is here where Ezra commits his whole being to dwell. 
Now we have to ask ourselves, what is there that was so special for him? And he's not alone in desiring the law of the Lord with such fervor in Israel's history. Remember the introduction to the Psalms, the introduction, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law, the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Or King David, who writes the most amazing Psalm 19, and notes how the heavens declare the glory of God and then moves to the beauty of the sun which comes out and, and nothing is hidden from its light and its heat. And then he moves right into the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Really? Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. More desirable than gold? Sweeter than honey? The psalmist ends, yes. For by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. God's word restores our souls. It makes us wise, brings our hearts joy, enlightens the eyes. We can see. It is the light of the sun for us in a dark and perverted world. Where up is down, evil is good, lies are true, girl is boy, truthful is hateful. God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In God's word, we can see and be satisfied in him. God's word is more desirable because in it and by it, we prosper. We survive. C.S. Lewis writes, reflecting on Psalm 19 in this book that I just read while we, while we were in Germany a couple weeks ago. It's amazing. Reflecting on Psalm 19, C.S. Lewis writes that Christians increasingly live on a spiritual island. New and rival ways of life surround it in all directions, and their tides come further and further up the beach every time. He says, if we shall not all share in the experience of this psalmist, then we shall all be the losers. We shall drown in the changing tides. Ezra is the blessed man. He knows the law of the Lord is good. He loves it. He lives for it. The word of God is life for him. He seeks God in it. He does what God says, trusting it's for good. And he leads others in the light. He studies it. He practices it, and he teaches it. And so, God's hand is upon him, and he prospers in all his ways.
That's what we're seeing here with introducing Ezra on scene, this blessed man. Let's read on now, verses 11 through 26, a big chunk, and examine the purpose for this second movement. Verse 11. Now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Just stop for one sec. At this point, the, the, the original Hebrew writing ends. We transition back into Aramaic from 12 through the rest of the passage here in 26. What we have is another historical document, another historical decree from the historical King Artaxerxes. Right here, okay? 12 through 26. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also, the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs of the, for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with a zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethinim, or servants of this house of God. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment, or for confiscation of goods, or for imprisonment. I need to say more, sir. That's some decree. That is a historical document from the historical King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire. So, the king sets forth this decree, likely in response to the requests made by Ezra, which was referenced in verse 6. Remember, the king granted him all that he requested. So that's kind of some background. So the decree is likely in response to what Ezra has requested from the king. He notes in the decree, any Jew anywhere in the kingdom can join Ezra on this return. And then, what we can identify here, what's important for us today, we're not going to break down every single part of this decree, okay? We're just going to look at it as a glance and, and, and extract some of the, some of the important, important things that we need to highlight for our study and moving forward in the book. 
what we can identify are four duties in this decree that make up the purpose for this second movement. In other words, Ezra's mission, okay? The first is that he is appointed to lead the return from Babylon to Jerusalem, about 500 miles, maybe more depending on which route they took. Second, he is to transport the gifts and the grants that was all noted for the temple. The gifts and the grants from the Persian Empire that they were giving the people to take back to the temple with them. And remember in the decree, he even goes so far in verses 21 through 24 um, to, to, to decree for all the treasurers, even outside of Babylon, uh, for, for, for the, the treasurers of the trans-Euphrates River area, uh, for them along their way to collect more and more provisions for their return for their their temple services okay so he's to transport these gifts and these grants from the persian empire uh, to 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 for temple worship when they get there third he is to inquire about judah and jerusalem with respect to the law of ezra's god ezra is sent to assess for the king how the Judeans are living in accordance with their law and practice. In verse 14, we see that, okay? Fourth, he's sent to enforce the Jewish law by establishing a judicial system. We saw that at the end, near the end, in verses 25 and 26. He is to reinforce conformity to Jewish law among those who know the law of their God. And he is to teach. He's to, to teach conformity to those who are ignorant of the law. These people would consist of Jews back in, in Jerusalem who are not following the law of their God. Ezra has a responsibility on behalf of the king to teach conformity and to enforce it. Now, those are his four, those are his four tasks. For the Lord's sake, Ezra is sent to redefine Israel as a people of the book, the Torah, the law of the Lord of the God of heaven. That's his mission. These four tasks, his purpose, will serve as the framework of interpretation for the rest of the book of Ezra. What we're going to see in every chapter is going to be referring back to this opening on what, who Ezra is, what his commitments are, and what his purpose is on this mission. Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, one small piece in here that we do not want to brush over. The last verse enacts the penalty for anyone who disregards this decree. And he says, anyone who will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be upon them. He weds the two. Uh-oh, Ezra. That's no easy task. The politics of their situation is no easy task. It is not easy. Maybe in Babylon, at the heart of, of, of governmental power, the Judeans would be a bit more familiar with how to live their faith under Persian rule. But over there in Jerusalem, 500 miles away, that's going to look different. It's important that we understand at this point the politics of their time and place to see the full picture of what's going on here. Now, you may have asked yourself in the last several weeks since we started this, this series, and including this morning in this decree, why are these kings showing all this support, all this favor to the Jews? Listen to their speech. Are they believers? They seem to honor God and support God's kingdom agenda. 
They support God's people. They must be believers. No. They're just good politicians. You see, the Persian Empire, this is important for us to understand what's going on here, what's been going on, and what will continue to go on here under the Persian, in the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire governed their kingdom very differently than the Babylonian and Assyrian kingdoms, uh, empires before them. Instead of demanding sole allegiance and worship of the king and his empire, making all the people of the empire renounced their faith systems, Persia supported a plurality of religions in their kingdom. Their political strategy was different. It was to let the people worship their gods and even support them in their worship so that the people would willingly give them their allegiance and that their gods would even bless them. Many gods would bless us. We have historical documentation of Persia supporting many religious groups in their temple worship practices. Not just the Jews. Their support of the people, as we're seeing in this decree, specifically toward the Jews, their support of the people was motivated by their gain, their power. Ezra, you go over there where the God in Jerusalem dwells. How many times did you see that in the decree? You go over there, Ezra, where the God in Jerusalem dwells, and make sure it's peaceful over there. Can't have any disorder in our empire. Say a couple prayers for us, the king and his sons. Offer up a couple bulls for us, would you? And before you leave, one more thing. How do your people speak? What do they want to hear? Okay. Okay, good, good. Okay, now take this and go. Maintain order for us over there. That's what's going on here. Ugh, to which we might sigh at this point. You crafty politicians, you. But that's what's so amazing about what's happening here. There's two ways to read this decree. One from a purely historical lens. The king of kings, Artaxerxes, uses God's law to decree the following. But then, about 160 years later and beyond, the people of God who read this see that it was God the true king of kings who has been governing their affairs. It was God who takes that decree, thank you, little Artie, and binds it into his eternal cosmic word. He's the one truly governing our affairs. They think they're using us for them. But he is using them for us. And ultimately, him. Do you see that? King Artaxerxes is really just little Artie. In God's hands. Now, what do we make of this today? Oh boy, you got time? Family, you know I love you, right? And you know that I only care about what's best for us, our well-being, and Christ Jesus in us, right? We have to establish that first, okay? For one, nothing has changed, right? I hope that's easy to see still. 
same hearts running the same governing institutions at the local and federal level. So, as a scattered people of God's kingdom, living within the kingdoms of this world, I would ask, can we discern who is who? What is what? And who's ultimately governing our affairs? Can we discern? Can we see? Do you hear the rhetoric for our midterm elections? This guy eats people for dinner. This guy kisses babies at dinner. Who do you want at your dinner table? <laughs> really? That's effective? It is. It is effective. It's telling of where our capacities of discernment stand as a people at large. The question we need to ask ourselves is, does that rhetoric sway you? When you hear that, do you go, <clears throat> because if so, you may need enlightening. Not the suggested enlightenment that comes from crash courses in critical theory or neo-Marxism, nor the crash courses, the suggested crash courses that come through courses in PragerU. That's real talk. Shibboleth, Sibboleth. The law of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. For in it and by it we can see and discern. We are a people of the book. When our senses of discernment are trained, we can see through the affairs of this world. Just because our government leaders make decisions and enact policies that also support God's kingdom, the agenda of God's kingdom, which might be useful criteria in, 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 in choosing who we vote for, doesn't mean they're of us. All politicians want Christian allegiance. And they all know Christianese. All politicians use the Bible for their purposes. We hear it all over the place. Prayers and God's word being used for their ends. Be discerning, family. Guard your hearts. Lastly, those committed to dwell in God's word for true wisdom and insight will understand that when we vote, it's ultimately a kind of non-vote. I got this from Pastor John Piper, who wrote an article years ago, back in 2008. S Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You make that decision, cast that ballot, it's your responsibility and privilege. But ultimately, it is God who determines the outcome. A sound understanding of God and human affairs from his word will inform us that it is God who appoints leaders for their time of service and for the endings of their service. Family, when we enter into those booths next week, we vote with our consciences. But when we walk out, we trust God for the outcome. And above all, as Christians, we walk out knowing that King Jesus always wins. He always 
always reigns supreme. He is our heavenly king. He is our chief president. He is our governor. It is in him, with him, and under his rule where we find true, unshakable peace and prosperity for ourselves, our children, and our children's children. Amen? Artaxerxes says, King of kings, Artaxerxes, perfect peace. No. Perfect peace comes from the Prince of Peace himself who rules and reigns over all things. For us as Christians to seek peace and prosperity elsewhere is to have a worship disorder. Guard your hearts, beloved. I say these things with you and for you, that the peace of Christ would rule over us. Let's close out the chapter by reading the final two verses, which highlight the power behind the movement. 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is so cool. With all the honor ascribed to Ezra from both God and the king, we might meet Ezra for the first time and see him as a kind of celebrity pastor, which would be the last thing God's people need. That's another sermon, okay? The narrator for the first time in the book switches to first person. Did you see that shift? It's Ezra himself. Ezra speaks. We get a glimpse into the heart and mind of Ezra himself. And what do we see? Humility. Humility. Up to this point, the spotlight of the chapter is on Ezra. The narrator and the king sing his praise. But then when Ezra gets a chance to talk, he looks directly at God. Bless you, O Lord. Praise you, O God of our fathers. He knows that it is God who has worked all this out for his purposes to beautify the house of the Lord. Ezra says, I'm not the hero. God is. The first words out of Ezra are oriented toward God, we, and the mission. It's only after he praises God for these three does he praise God for his merciful hand upon himself before the king and his powerful courts. Thus he records, I was empowered by God's hand upon me. Third time we see this. The power behind Ezra's prosperity and success is God's hand or God's favor upon him. And we know from verse 10, the most important verse of this whole, the rest of this book here, because we see the connection, that God's hand upon him is mediated by God's word. Ezra's commitment to study it, to practice it, and to teach it to others. Ezra serves as an exemplary model for the people of God to follow, including us today as people of the book. The big idea of this whole chapter here is that God's hand is upon us when his word is in us. God's hand is upon us when his word is in us. This is a message all through scriptures. But what we do see in Ezra and Nehemiah and all through the Old Testament, what's made very clear is that keeping the law of God in our hearts and practicing it was impossible. It wasn't until God sends his son Jesus, the word of God made flesh, who came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in us, 
He lived the perfect life in obedience on our behalf and died the death that we deserve for our sin so that by faith in him, in his death and resurrection, we would be born again, filled with his Holy Spirit. And God writes his law in our hearts and by his Spirit causes us to love him and follow him and love others as he has loved us. This is the new covenant purchased in the blood of Jesus. Just like Keith said last week, it's far more simple and far fuller for us today. We don't have 613 laws to follow. We have a person, Jesus, who fulfills all the law and leads us in the law of love. Look at him. Love him. Live for him. All of God's word still has the same purifying, joyful, enlightening power in it as it helps us to see the fullness of light and life in Jesus. Amen? What do you want? What are you striving for? He's given us all we ever need. Himself. His hand is upon us when his word is in us. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the cross. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself for us that we might be rescued reconciled and redeemed. You tell us in your world, in your, in your word, that the world is passing away along with all its desires. Empires will rise and fall. Kings will rise and fall. Leaders and governors and presidents will rise and fall. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Help us by the living word of Christ in us to will and to work according to your good purposes. Lord, we pray for peace in our land. We ask that you would appoint the right candidates and administrations that will further the gospel of Jesus, that will grant the freedoms and protect the freedoms for your church to advance your kingdom, advance your gospel, O God. And as you do, help us to be a people at peace as we see and behold King Jesus and his rule and reign over our lives, thereby making us peacemakers. Help us this season to be at peace, that we would be peacemakers, agents of reconciliation, that you would be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen.